I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, Alphabet City, 1986. The rent is cheap, the night is young, and the stars are out. My first real home away from home is a fourth floor walk up in Alphabet City that I share with my former college roommate, Dave Schlackett. My room fits a loft bed and little else, but I can afford it on my restaurant salary. Plus, Dave provides me with an instant social life. Dave and I grew up a mere 16 geographical miles from each other, but as a Brooklyn boy, his misspent teen years had a markedly more cosmopolitan flavor. While my high school friends and I were gobbling mushrooms in one of Englewood, New Jersey's numerous wooded tracks, Dave was arms aloft at Studio 54, decked out in Fiorucci jeans and naked from the well-toned waist on up, save for a poppy red neck bandana and a liberal dowsing of Halston's E14 cologne. Dave is an inherently social being, handsome, genial, a charmer, with buff biceps and a blinding smile. Dave's girlfriend is an actress named Marissa Tomei, who gives him fits with her vexing, actressy ways. I do confess to being somewhat smitten with my roommate's girlfriend, but this is not difficult. I hold a purple belt in forming crushes, and Marissa is a first day of class kind of deal. Like Marissa, Alphabet City's up and coming in 1986, but the area is still damn sketchy. The homeless encampments in Tompkins Square Park will lead to full-scale riots in two years, and graffiti proclaiming, die yuppie scum, is everywhere you look. Mere yards from the tenement pictured on the cover of Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti, cocaine is easily purchasable behind suspect-looking storefronts whose display windows feature a few ceremonial cans of Goya beans and a haphazard arrangement of dusty laundry detergent jugs fooling nobody. A block or so north, on 1st Avenue, is a corner so reliably rife with prostitution and crack sales, it's like a downtown version of the Ramones. Dave and I consider ourselves lucky that on our block, East 6th between Avenue A and B, you can almost always count on some kind of regular, non-chud activity taking place, encouraged by a gigantic 24-hour green market on Avenue A that enlivens and illuminates the surrounding blocks. Yet it all remains slightly untamed. Up the block from our place is the hole-in-the-wall gladiator gym, 
where chiseled, mainly Latino lifters sweat at all hours under the weight of primitive equipment, much of it hand-built by the owner-manager. Directly across from us, scowling from behind security fencing and flanked by a hulking German shepherd, a burly white-haired man rumored to be an ex-Nazi is perpetually parked. You have to keep your eyes open, just not too wide. I've learned how to avoid making direct visual contact after a few too many unsolicited conversations with men responding to my searching brown eyes. Hey there, you with the stars in your eyes. Love never made a fool of Our building looks like nothing from the outside, like absolutely nothing. Just a stain-resistant steel door planted amid a concrete expanse. The interior is raw and harshly lit by industrial-strength fluorescent tubes. Staircases are steep, walls pocked and painted in lurid shades of yellow and red, like a hamburglary in McDonald land gone unspeakably wrong. Still, the unfinishedness of the neighborhood has its charms. Visible from our east-facing bathroom window, in the third-floor window of a building across Avenue B is an ad for a long-gone dentist Dr. Puglio, whose name appears in white letters above a floating molar. It's tempting to describe our living arrangement as low rent, but affordable rent is the better term, and it's what makes our cool situation possible. I can't even imagine why anyone would ever want to live anywhere else, and I'm starting to envy people who have apartments of their own. Like RJ, who graduated a year ahead of me and Dave, and has a studio on St. Mark's Place. Six months ago, RJ purchased a half-ton of shower curtain hoops in Chinatown for next to nothing, and with minimal modifications, converted them into earrings. Applying roughly the same principle, he transformed anodized aluminum dowel pins into bracelets and other accessories, the kind that passed for cool in these chic, cheap-loving 80s. Think borderline-era Madonna, her pre-yoga arms stacked with an egregious number of bangles. RJ is a true hustler, and he has the pep to drive all over the city hawking his wares. No venue too large or too small. He'll start local, making rounds at stands around Canal Street and in Chinatown. Then he'll head uptown to the Bloomingdale's jewelry counter. When stuck in traffic, he maintains his battleship-mimicking flat top with sustained mistings of final net and a battery-powered hair clipper he keeps stashed in his sample case. But who am I to poke fun? Through sheer moxie, RJ has nabbed a place of his own. How sweet it would be to have a pad like his. To be able to traipse down the front steps, unhatch the security gate, and have sounds, the best second-hand record store in town, 50 paces up the street, and the whole of New York just beyond. And how sweet it would be to be so close to work as to enable a leisurely breakfast at Veselka or B&H Dairy before strolling a measly three blocks to Iso on 11th and 2nd. Despite my complete lack of restaurant experience, I wait tables at a very hot sushi restaurant. How hot is Iso? Madonna would meet up there with Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring, the most beloved of all ESO regulars, who drew the Fish Mandala logo that adorns the popular ESO t-shirts. 
Right after her concert at Radio City Music Hall last year, Madonna showed up at ESO in a chauffeur-driven truck and, per Andy Warhol's diary, started drawing cocks all over her friend Futura 2000's pants. The waiters were on the floor. And while I might have missed out on Madonna's cocks, ESO's reputation for quality sushi and a certain hip factor continues to bring in an array of notable regulars. Everyone from neighborhood guys like Joey Ramone, hey! a true sushi devotee, to former Studio 54 co-owner Ian Schrager, who's five years removed from serving a prison sentence for tax evasion and back in the nightlife again with Palladium. One night I flirted with Indiana Jones's main squeeze, Karen Allen. Last month, I arrived for my shift to find the place rearranged to accommodate a long central table that was reserved for a band I'd never heard of, Metallica. They were in town opening for Ozzy at Nassau Coliseum. I can still hear their drummer Lars calling out across the table. Hey! Try some of this fucking yellowtail! The non-famous ESO regulars are also pretty cool. A garrulous, blonde-dreaded guy who works sound on Pee-wee's Playhouse came in one night, placed his headphones over my ears, and queued up Dark Side of the Moon on a portable CD player. I have only physically held one compact disc, ever. Steve Winwood's Back in the High Life, which someone gave to Dave despite Dave's lack of a CD player. So this is cutting-edge stuff I'm being exposed to. Mark Lynn Baker, co-star of TV's new hit comedy series Perfect Strangers, comes in once or twice a week, dining for one and not being ridiculous in the tip department. Recently, I retrieved a black scarf, soft as angel wings, left behind by Elizabeth Saltzman, a New York socialite and fashion arbiter, after her late-night nosh with Ian Schrager. Elizabeth is electrically beautiful and is dating top-of-the-world record producer and former main squeeze of Madonna, Jellybean Benitez. Ian returned a few nights later. I brought him the scarf, and he immediately held it up to his face and sighed, smells like her, to his dinner guest, Robert Isabel, florist to the stars. And Robert knows a thing or two about scents. In July, he'll secure 10,000 white lilies for Caroline Kennedy's wedding. As a waiter, I earn A's for effort, but I struggle when it comes to the myriad of details to keep straight. The unruly dishes of steaming tempura, each with their separate monkey dishes of tonka sauce and white rice. I've begun to hate people based on how complicated their sushi order is. The other night, in the midst of a hectic shift, a guy who's just ordered a salmon skin hand roll with shiso leaf on the inside gazes up and declares, Wow, do you ever look warm? For my general haplessness, I earn a less than equal share of the pooled tips at the end of my shift, and am viewed as sincere but ineffectual by the other waitstaff. Iso takes its name from the owner and head chef, Shoji Iso, who smokes whenever he can. When things are slow, he'll squat behind the sushi bar and grab a few quick puffs, and at the end of a shift, he enjoys a single can of Budweiser with his congratulatory lung dart. Iso is a man of few words, inscrutable you might even say but in his unstated concern that my lack of table-waiting panache will one day lead to disaster, he's entirely justified. Dave and Marissa are either super hot for each other, making noisy love in Dave's room over loud thumpa-thumpa music, or they're in crisis. 
Dave is possessive, preoccupied with the status of their relationship, and maybe not unduly concerned with Marissa's many charismatic male friends. Just about anything can set him off. He charged into my darkened sleep nook one night while I was engaged in some awkward reunion sex with a girl from Vassar, assailing me at high volume because Marissa had just mentioned to him that we'd run into each other earlier that day on St. Mark's Place in front of her apartment and talked and smoked a little roach together. How dare I neglect to report this incident to him? If that's Dave at his most needy and irrational, Marissa is every bit his equal in angst creation. The usual last-minute flakings, the bouts of crankiness and occasional diva behavior are one thing. She is an actress, after all, and a damn good one. But things have grown complicated in ways that Dave, a serial juggler of relationships for years now, has never had to put up with. During a chilly New York spring, shortly after I'd moved in, Marissa had come down with some kind of a bug and taken refuge in Dave's room for an extended encampment. Dave worked double time to keep her comfortable and turned out to be an exemplary private nurse, serving as the liaison between Maris, she is often just Maris, and her very concerned mom, supplying frequent health updates and eventually coordinating the doctor visit Marissa clearly needed. Way uptown on Park Avenue. So Dave has a car waiting downstairs. He escorts Marissa to the doctor and back, guides her gently up the four flights, tucks her into his bed, kisses her lightly upon the brow, then heads to Mrs. Tomei's preferred pharmacy, not local. It's pouring rain, but Dave is out there doing the good. Returning home with antibiotics, a medley of juices, pain relievers, magazines, a roll of cherry lifesavers, just because. He mounts the steep staircase with arms full of good stuff for his honey, heart bursting with goodwill. But when he reaches our floor, he detects a funky smell. And as he's digging for his keys, he notes with alarm that the smell seems to be coming from inside. Feeling a little panicky, Dave jams in the key, turns it, and gives the door a hard shove. <laughs> but it catches. The security chain's attached. Hey! He bellows through the gap. What the fuck? He yells again, and again. At last, a portion of an unfamiliar woman's face appears behind the chain. You can't come in. Marissa! Tell her to let me in! What the fuck is going on? The door is unlatched, and the source of the smell becomes clear. Pots of bubbling liquids roil on the stove, painting the walls with a noxious steam coating. Two large ladies in caftans glare as Dave pushes past them into his bedroom, where he finds Marissa, on top of the covers, sans clothing, carefully balancing a half-dozen crystals strategically placed upon her slender torso. They're healers, she says with closed eyes. They're healing me. Healers? Are you shitting me? Healers? Would you look at the size of them? Who needs healing? Marissa, I have your antibiotics. I'm not taking it, she says, eyes clamped, crystals quaking. Marissa, please. It's what the doctor prescribed. The doctor doesn't love me. The doctor doesn't love you. They love me. The doctor took the Hippocratic Oath. He doesn't have to love you. Just take the fucking medicine.
Eventually, once Dave had banished the healers and tossed one of his cooking pots out the window for good measure, Marissa comes back around to Western medicine and ingests the antibiotics. Soon she recuperates and things go back to normal. Who's to say which remedy really sealed the deal? Weirdly enough, RJ, who seems to have his curtain rod hoop bedecked finger on the pulse of things, is our ecstasy connection. I say weirdly because he seems utterly impervious to the drug's empathy-enhancing effects and always retains a used car salesman-ish aura no matter what he's ingested. How do you do, ma'am? My name is Del Griffith. I'm with the American Light and Fixture Company, Jewelry Division, and I've got the deal of a lifetime for you. Do you have a minute? This is your Diane Sawyer autographed earring. You ever watch 60 Minutes? Thanks. This is Czechoslovakian ivory. That's, that's, that's five dollars. Great. This is your Walter Cronkite moon ring. RJ's source is a guy called Norman, a taciturn Englishman who has a fabulous apartment on the roof and turret of the Chelsea Hotel. Norman is fond of plaid jumpers, always wears a hat, and came up with the perfect description of what happens when you smoke pot on ecstasy. Throws a spanner in the works. The obtainability of the Norman stuff has brought about a radical, if temporary, rewiring of the senses. Ecstasy has a way of bringing you closer to people, those you are already drawn to, and even those you've just met. I love you. Along with this interpersonal barrier-reducing quality, there's a tactile component, which is akin to discovering heretofore unknown pleasures of the body, of simply having limbs, skin, sweat glands, a pulse. At times, the feeling of it flowing through you like warm syrup almost seems to pass for a kind of transcendence, a stupefied satisfaction, an all-enveloping bliss. Picture this. I'm motoring northbound on the FDR Drive in my beat-up Datsun Honeybee, heading out for Memorial Day at my parents' house. The sun is just coming up, and the radio gods serve up gold. and I'm weeping tears of ecstasy gratitude as it plays over my beyond terrible AM radio because everything's just so goddamn beautiful. On a Friday in August, Dave and I catch She's Gotta Have It in the afternoon, the day it comes out. The funny parts are funny as hell. And we do, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please, all the way home. But I'm not sure what to make of a woman bold enough to keep three dudes hanging on. And I sure don't know what to make of the rape scene, which is kind of played for laughs. Around dusk, the all-stars from our ecstasy summer begin to arrive. Five forty-three East Sixth Street, though cramped by any objective measure. It's fairly cozy now. Dave has installed shiny black and white tiles over our brief hint of kitchen floor, one of several small but noticeable improvements that he's cannily exchanged for portions of the rent. Adding weight to the proceedings, Steve, our old college housemate and a future business partner of Dave, is here. His presence, 
Not just his physical presence, which is formidable, but his actual presence is always a special event in itself. Even in college, on the biggest nights at the party, when you fucking had to show up with your best parachute pants and tucked in blousy shirt, Steve would be chilling in his off-campus apartment with his lady, Lisa White, who was a few years ahead of us and about to graduate. That was Steve. Not participating, not even conflicted about it. Beyond it. Vassar was one of the original Seven Sisters and had only been co-ed for about a decade. Yet even at Vassar, Steve was known as someone you wouldn't want to cross in a street fight. He also has an introspective, mystical side. He believes in angels, and once pressed Dorothy Bryant's The Kin of Atta Are Waiting For You On Me, saying it would change my life. I myself had only witnessed the dark side of Steve once. I'm up in my room cranking to hell with poverty by gang of four in the middle of the day, not realizing Steve's trying to catch up on some Z's in his downstairs bedroom. He really looked like he was about to lay me out. But he's a pal. And on E, he's like a giant lion lolling in a dusty veldt. Steve's major contribution to the night is when he kills the lights and fetches a handful of votive candles from the kitchen cupboard, having left them behind when he moved out a few months ago and made way for me. Accompanying Steve is Tim White, the brother of Molly White, the sister of Lisa White, Steve's girlfriend at Vassar. The previous year I'd flown out to see Steve in Seattle, where he'd migrated after college and fallen quickly in love with Molly White in the course of a week. And she with me, in a way. But are you ready to be heartbroken? Are you ready to be heartbroken? Somehow, her brother Tim, a gentle-eyed stage actor who had landed in our orbit, is a lovely presence. If I can't have Molly, at least Tim seems to bring some of her alluring spirit around. Mike Hart, whom I've only recently met while bagging earrings at RJ's apartment for 10 bucks an hour, is a high school friend of Dave's. He had been scuffling around, crashing on couches and avoiding scrapes just barely, until one night out on the town with Dave, when Dave introduces him to Haynes Suthon, a striking, outrageous, New Orleans-born lawyer-come-friend of the fabulous. Based on nothing more than Mike Hart's charm and leprechaun twinkle, Hayne lets him stay in small quarters at the top of a building she's just bought, at 24 First Avenue, in exchange for a minimal amount of rent and walking her twin Dobermans. Violet under good luck, or good teeth, but the real miracle of Mike Hart happened just a few weeks ago. Mike's taking a smoke break during an earring bagging session at RJ's, which is now the primary business hub for RJ International LLC. Dave's there, too, just to hang out so Mike's leaning out the window, because RJ won't let anyone smoke inside. We even have to take off our shoes, and at this point, it's only Buddhists who do that. So Mike's leaning out, and then suddenly, no Mike. A fraction of a moment passes before Dave and I scramble over to the window and peer downward. To our crazy relief, Mike's on his feet, and he's waving. Somehow his body had made one sweet, perfect revolution on the way down, and he'd landed feet first in the pit between two buildings. Even the strictest East German judge would have been impressed by how he stuck that landing. What does this not very unusual? So Mike Hart is having a charmed summer.
Marissa arrives. She's in a sort of Madonna phase. Bangles, t-shirt with the sleeves rolled up, cut off overall shorts. The scene is now complete, because Marissa is something of an ecstasy muse for me by now. At certain moments, she is just so right there with you, in that delicious stillness of no words exchanged, reciprocating my dreamy gazes, and with that throaty laugh. We don't not drink with E, but not much anyway. It just isn't needed. Nothing else is. Even pot can mess up the perfection, per Norman's law. Better to wait until you're on the way down, when you just want to extend that feeling a little bit and keep the jangles at bay. We down hours with the beer, and soon we're sprawled in the living room, smoking cigs and getting off, the conversational cadence downshifting to a purr. Be Yourself Tonight by the Eurythmics is a favorite. It's super soulful, a far cry from the spiky synth pop you think of, with rich, sumptuous 80s production. Even the title, Be Yourself Tonight, has an ecstasy vibe to it. We all swoon to the rousing Stax-style horns that open It's Alright, Baby's Coming Back, the song that seems to impart what so many great songs do. It's alright. It's gonna be alright. Someday, everything will be alright. Well, right now, it's all so much better than alright. I'm sitting back-to-back with Tim White, our dorsal regions melding against each other in perfect support. I've never made out with a guy or anything, and it's not like I want to kiss Tim White, but I dearly want to pet his shoulder, and I do, and it's fine, for the syrup has hit us, one and all, and nothing can possibly be wrong. Whereas a pot conversation is discursive and laugh-infused, and a coke conversation is verbose and taken with itself and ultimately useless, the talk on E is less hyper, more like emanating tiny little pleasure molecules from your warmed throat regions. It's like a mouthful of stars, I said once, co-opting the famous declaration of Dom Perignon on discovering bubbly. Come quickly, I'm drinking stars. So we sprawl together on the rug, relishing prostrateness and corporeality in the company of warm others who are digging the very same things at the very same time. The only thing about Be Yourself Tonight is it ends on a downish note. So does Peter Gabriel's So, another popular ecstasy favorite that you can't quite let play through. Maybe it's an 80s thing. I don't want to get up. I don't want to move. But I rise to fade the tape player. Oh, play that song. You know the one, Marissa says. I do know the one. Keep calling your name in my sleep, well. I keep calling your name in my sleep, yeah. Keep calling your name in my sleep, oh, oh, oh. Calling your name in my sleep. A split 45 on the Techniques label, credited to Ernest Wilson, is what Marissa is calling for. Dave went to Jamaica in January and came back with a pastel of 7-inch singles, popular reggae hits of the moment. The labels were simple, no decorative sleeve, they were just authentic and rootsy. Dave even came back saying, cool running, and now we all say it. 
This was different reggae than what I thought of as reggae. It was lighter, more playful than Bob Marley's songs of freedom, and more in line with Toots and the Maytals' spirit of earthy fun. Though Ernest Wilson was a founding member of the Caledonians, a seminal rock-steady group of the 60s, and a stalwart solo artist, I have no idea who he is. This single has to be one of Dave's rare finds. Ernest sings in an earthy, lilting soul voice, a little bit like Otis Redding, on top of a springy, two-chord vamp. It's irresistible. Dave and I chime in in unison on the cathartic moment of wordless percussion. I've got a Marlboro Light in my hand. Smoking on E feels like the best cigarette you've ever had, and I'm catching glimpses of Marissa flowing to the beat, her feet only touching down occasionally, and I'm singing along with Dave and Ernest. We hit up Dave's reggae trove for a few more songs based on that same springy little pattern. Girly Girly by Sister George and Audrey Hall's One Dance Won't Do. And then Marissa takes over. LL Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care. You tell. I excel. They all fell. Gonna cancel double L. Must rock my bells. It's a little jarring. Steve and Tim don't seem to dig it at all. But Dave and Marissa are shaking it down on the parquet. And now I'm ready to move too. The extended 12-inch remix. Dave is a 12-inch remix kind of guy. And now all of us are up and swaying, even Steve and Tim and Mike. Dave and Marissa lean in close for their favorite bit when the soul diva vocals come in at about the five and a half minute point. That's it. We're going dancing. In a city full of cool places, area is the place to be. The nexus of the downtown art, music, and fashion scenes, full of beautiful people, club kids, weirdos, and wannabes, and suffused with an undeniable buzz of excitement and transgressiveness. Steve and Tim can't see the point and stay behind. We hail a cab on Avenue A, me up front, Dave, Marissa, and Mike Hart in back, and head down 6th across B, C, and D to the East Side Drive, which is the fastest way down to Hudson Street on the West Side. South of Houston, it's still a no-man's land. You only cross that frontier to go to a gigantic club, or if you're from out of town, perhaps to check out Odeon, the spot celebrated in Bright Light's big city. Not long ago, Feeling young and spry in my black jeans, Chuck Taylors, and newly purchased vintage Paisley shirt, I made my way through the hundredfold area crowd, approached one of the door guys, and talked my way in. Steamrolled, in Steve's words. This did great things for my ego, and after that, whenever Sean was on, there was no waiting. Sean is on tonight, and so is George, whose jacket pocket fills up with bindle upon cocaine bindle, offerings that Dave finds easy to obtain, and the ropes part. Tonight is just a profusion of egress. 
You make your way down a long and cavernous stone hallway, passing a series of display windows reminiscent of museum dioramas. The club changes them every six weeks or so, reinventing itself in a way that makes it the envy of every other club in the city. These elaborate installations, created around themes like suburbia, gnarly, the color red, incorporate everything from live lizards to live humans, taxidermy, animas, what have you. The nights when a new theme debuts are absolute madhouse events. JFK Jr. has to wait outside among the thousands. For a little while, anyway. Friday is amateur night, everybody knows that. But area is still our playground of choice, and the circus theme is still going on. Dave was there on the first night and came away with a couple of temporary tattoos so realistic that his mother cried when he showed them off to her. When you live in New York and get used to seeing certain well-known people as a matter of course, they just happen to be out and about people, and you live in their neighborhood, so you see them. Thus, Philip Glass and Allen Ginsberg and Luis Guzman are as regular sightings for me as the possible Nazi with the German Shepherd. So it goes on the club scene. Citing the designer Steven Sprouse with his trademark bandana or Village Voice downtown columnist Michael Musto with his disco whistle is like seeing Norm at the Cheers bar. Musto! In we go, moving toward the music as one, Dave leading the way, and it's the song of the moment for me. Life's What You Make It by Talk Talk. I first heard it here a couple of weeks ago, and it just knocked me out. We pause for a moment so a pair of drag queens can gently lay appreciative fingers upon Dave's deltoids, and then we snake our way into the delicious darkness of the dance floor. The Talk Talk song. So spacious sounding over the big club system. And then the refrain from our tenement party returns. Having grown up among the Disco Sucks generation, not hating it exactly, but feeling funny about liking it, embracing the wonders of dance music has been an essential leap forward. Dave and I take a break, and we make our way to the most centrally located of the club's famed multi-use lavatories. A previous generation had a penchant for stuffing themselves into phone booths. At Area, something similar happens in the bathrooms, but with coke snorting and sex. A few yards from where we pee, a miniature bacchanal is taking place in two of the stalls. We banter with the two middle-aged Romanian women who preside in front as attendants. They tell us we're looking good tonight, so we avail ourselves of the adjacent photo booth. Our eyes blaze and our foreheads glow with the sheen of E. On our way back toward Mike and Marissa, I stop and talk with David Spada, a regular at ESO, who, like RJ, is making anodized aluminum jewelry, only on a much more accomplished artistic level. He's close with Keith Haring, and ESO and his wife Masako always treat him like a Picasso in the making. Apparently, he's poised to break out nationally, and he's young, our age, and always a sweet guy to wait on. His latest project has something to do with a Josephine Baker-inspired banana skirt held together with his signature anodized aluminum. Of course, seeing him now, under these conditions, I am delighted. A bit overly so. Well, you sure seem like you're in a good mood, he says. And I respond, no filter at all, that I am indeed in a good mood because I've ingested 
the love drug. I don't call it ecstasy. I call it the love drug. And he recoils. And this is awkward. Uh, see you at the restaurant? Appetizers on me? Continuing toward the bar, I'm thinking, wow, not everybody thinks drugs are good. Mike Hart and I have our backs to the bar and we're enjoying the cold, wet brilliance of a bottle of Rolling Rock when the sinister electro-funk of Set It Off by Strafe creeps up. And we both chin nod in sync. The song is stone cold cool. There's space in it. Space you can feel in your viscera, but space for your head to do infinity circles in the cool, cloud-free zone above your shoulders where distortion pedals are most unwelcome. Mike? Klein? What do you think this song is about? Sex. It's just so succinct and deadpan and totally Mike Hart. I have to hug him. He's got another half hit and we take it with a slug of beer and go back inside. Just in time for, seriously, the song of the moment. Like the Strafe song, there's something gorgeous and unsettling about the way Malcolm McLaren's Madam Butterfly creeps in. You can see her from miles away, Marissa. Spotlit, like the flickering image of the tragic Chocho San. We reach her just as the soprano part comes in, the aria from the Puccini opera. And we all sink into the song's tremulous flow. And then... No mic. Just like out the window that time. Now it's just us two. And it keeps on being too perfect. I'm doing slow arm circles now, and it's so supremely pleasurable, I don't even care if I look like I'm trying to keep from falling backwards down a flight of stairs. Plus, Marissa's doing them too. This is the peak. At some point later, we look for Dave and Mike, but we can't find them. And Marissa has an audition the next day. It's not unusual for various friendship clusters to lose each other in the crowd and end up meeting up at a different venue later on in the night. You can leave someone a message on their answering machine and do it that way. So Marissa and I took a cab back to the East Village, getting out at St. Mark's and 3rd, around the corner from her place, in order to grab that perfect end-of-the-night slice, just to tamp it all down good and right. She says she has a joint. So we go up to her place. Nothing happens. We're both pretty wiped out, and she says I can crash on the futon at the foot of her bed. A few hours later, I steal away while she's still sleeping. Obviously nothing will be said. I have an excuse ready if Dave asks where I've been, but he's not even home yet. Probably still over at Save the Robots, a basement-level after-hours club on Avenue B, which has a sand-covered floor to mimic the beach and is dark as a dungeon, so you have no idea what time it is, like a dirty Vegas. There is actually one other time I never told Dave about. Marissa and I took my Dotson honeybee, which I still kept at my parents' house, to some park she knew about, 
one she used to go to with her parents as a kid growing up in Brooklyn, and we spent the afternoon there. On the way back, driving fast with no cars around us and the sun blazing, Marissa fell asleep and I remember placing a very small blossom I had taken from the park in her open palm as I drove, and it miraculously staying there, even with the wind blowing through the car like mad. That was the kind of summer it was. In a year or so, Marissa will become a fixture on a different world, her rise to fame officially begun, forcing Dave to compete for attention with her new bestie, Lisa Bonet. At this point, though, her brief turn as Mandy the waitress in The Flamingo Kid is the standout item on Marissa's resume. As for me, my brief turn as David the waiter, as eye-opening as it's been, cannot sustain me. In September, I'll start my first teaching job and begin grad school, our ecstasy summer released into the past like an airborne blossom sailing free from a Dotson. Next up, me and Mrs. Jones. We got a thing going on. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.